Well, last week, um, we considered how Paul encouraged the Philippians to strive for gospel unity through humility. By considering others more significant than ourselves and looking to the needs of others. And all of this flowing from chapter 1, verse 27, where Paul urged the Philippians to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. Paul knows that if we are to match our lives to the gospel, that we are going to have to look at the gospel. And this morning, we are going to look at the climax of the gospel, which is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The place from which all of God's redemptive plans and purposes come to bear on our broken world. So the text before us this morning is the very center of the gospel. And in this letter, it functions as a type of power source that generates currents that flow throughout the letter. So that's the text we get the privilege of considering together. Now, last week I suggested that theological unity, although important, was not Paul's main concern in this letter. Yet, rather, it was their unity of mind and their unity of affection for one another that Paul wanted to encourage and protect. Now, in the passage before us this morning, there's a temptation for us and me to primarily discuss the theological implications for understanding the nature of Christ or the nature of the Trinity. And we will discuss those along the way. However, I do not want us to lose sight of the primary focus and the thrust of Paul in this passage. Paul wants us to live in a manner consistent with the gospel by showing us the humility of Christ. And the humility of Christ is the clearest picture of a life of other-focused humility as we as Christians are called to live. As we mentioned last week, selfish ambition and conceit are natural to our sinful nature. And our culture is no help in this matter. We are fed lies constantly. Look out for yourself. It's the only sure path to success. We're told that if we don't look out for ourselves, no one else will. We're told that you cannot love others unless you love yourself first. We're told that the path of recognition before men will bring satisfaction and significance that we long for. But these lies that we are all tempted to believe are contrary to the example of our Savior and the path that he has set before us. The path of lowering self for the sake of others. And it is a costly path that will result in death to self. But that is not the end of the story because Paul wants us to see that there is joy that we can experience when we deny ourselves for the sake of others. The big idea of this passage is this. Our imitation of Christ's humility will lead to joy in our unity now and everlasting joy when he returns. Our passage this morning begins with Paul's exhortation in verse 5 for us to have the mindset of Christ. And verses 6 to 11 function as Paul's illustration of what the mindset of Christ looks like. So I have three points this morning. First, we'll consider the humiliation of Christ in verses 6 through 8, then the exaltation of Christ in verses 9 through 11, 
And finally, we'll come back around to verse 5 and consider our imitation of Christ. So first, the humiliation of Christ in verses 6 through 8. Now, in these few verses, there are several downward steps of humility that Paul highlights in these verses. Beginning in verse 6, Paul shows us the first downward step of humility that Christ takes. Who, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, it is rare for us to get a peek behind the curtain of divine mystery of the preexistence of Christ. And we get a small glimpse of that here. So Paul begins by saying, though Jesus was in the form of God, he actually did something unexpected. The point is that we would expect that someone who was in the form of God to actually count equality with God a thing to be grasped. When Paul is saying that Jesus was in the form of God, it does not mean that Jesus appeared to be God and he really, wa- really wasn't. Rather, what Paul is asserting is that Jesus in his very nature was characterized by what is essential to being God. And we know this because the next phrase says that Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That assumes that Jesus is equal to God, or else that doesn't make sense. So what Paul is saying here is that even though Jesus was equal to God, it did not cause him to grasp or to hoard or to take advantage of his position and privilege as God. You see, Jesus could have remained in heaven in his position of power and authority. He could have received unceasing worship and praise from the hosts of heaven for all eternity, and he would still be good and loving and righteous and just. I mean, a king acting like a king, using his position of power and authority would make total sense, wouldn't it? Not for Jesus. Even though he had all the privileges of God, he set them aside for us. Now, some have incorrectly suggested that this phrase, being in the form of God, somehow implies that Jesus was less than God. But if Jesus was less than God, Paul is using a terrible example of humility here. Why is that? Because it's really not humility for someone lesser to rise up against someone who is greater. Only someone who is equal to God and willingly chooses not to take advantage of that status and position can be an example of humility for us. Now, the Philippians would have been familiar with Nero, who is the emperor of the Roman Empire at this time. And Nero is the counterexample of Jesus. Nero was not in the form of God, but he demanded that his subjects worship him as if he were a god. Nero was a tyrannical, self-indulgent, conceited king who took advantage of his position and killed anyone that stood in his quest to remain in power. But not Jesus. Jesus, who was actually God, he did not take advantage of his position. Rather, he willingly chose to pour out his life for the sake of other people. Now, kids... I haven't forgotten about you. Let me have your attention for a moment. When you get a toy as a gift for your birthday, do you hoard on to it 
or do you share it with others? Yes, the toy belongs to you because you got it for your birthday. But do you allow it to be used by your siblings and your friends? Jesus was not a hoarder. All that he had, he used to bless others. Teenagers, what about you? Maybe you are the popular kid in your group. Or maybe you're not at all. If, if you're not, then this illustration falls flat, but that's okay. But maybe some of you are the popular kid in your group. Do you use that privilege to your advantage to make yourself appear better than others? Or do you take advantage of it and make fun of other people or use it not to include other people, other kids in your group? How about those of you in the workplace? Maybe you are in a privileged position of authority. Maybe you are an owner or a manager. Do you take advantage of your position to serve yourself and your own needs and get away with things? Or do you use your privilege to serve others who are under you? Jesus, even though he was God, he did not take advantage of his privilege of being God. Instead, he used his privileges to meet the need of others, even people like us who were his enemies. In verse 7, Paul shows us the second downward step of humility. He says this, But Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. In verse 6, if, if verse 6 is focused on what Jesus did not do, which is he did not take advantage of his position, verse 7 is focused on what Jesus did do. He became a servant. Now, there has been debate as to what Paul means when he says Jesus emptied himself. Some have concluded that Jesus emptied himself of his divine attributes when he became a man, or for a moment he ceased to become to remain God. But that would be reading something into the text that is just not there. The phrase emptying himself is defined and clarified by the two phrases that follow. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and by being born in the likeness of men. Just as being in the form of God is defined by equality with God in the previous verse, being in the form of a servant is defined by being born in the likeness of men in this verse. So let's consider the significance of each. First, Jesus takes the form of a servant, more precisely, a slave. The one who from all eternity existed in splendor and majesty concealed his glory by becoming a slave. Think about this for a minute. Jesus could have come as someone of high esteem. He could have come as a king with all of his rights and privileges of divine authority. Yet, he laid all the riches and power and glory aside to become a slave, a servant. He was born to a poor family in a filthy manger. There was no room for him in the inn. The one who created all things had no room for him. Jesus could have come demanding to be served because he was the Son of God. 
But Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, the commission of the promised Messiah of being a servant goes back to the book of Isaiah. In the book of Isaiah, the nation of Israel is initially identified as the servant of Yahweh. And they were commissioned to be a light to the nations by keeping their covenant with God. But as we all know, Israel failed miserably because of their sin and idolatry. But God promised to raise up a new servant, the Messiah. And this servant would serve God by obeying the law of God completely and perfectly and sacrificing his life for the sins of his people. Now, by referring to Jesus as a servant, Paul is connecting Christ with the promised Messiah in the Old Testament who was going to be a suffering servant. Now, second here, Paul says Jesus is born in the likeness of men. The reality of the Messiah becoming a servant required him to be born in the likeness of men. Now, the phrase likeness of men is both very ambiguous but it is very precise at the same time. There's a sense in which Jesus is like us in our humanity, but there is a sense in which he is not like us. The similarity lies in Jesus fully taking on a human nature just like ours. But he is not like us in the fact that Jesus never sinned and he never stopped being equal to God. This was the only solution that was possible for mankind's rebellion against God. Because man sinned against God, man had to pay the penalty for sin through death. But because the penalty incurred against an infinitely holy God was infinite, only an infinite being could bear the infinite wrath of God against our sin. So Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God, instead of taking advantage of his divine status, he pours out his life by becoming a human being, a servant and a slave. He empties himself by adding humanity to his full deity. The result is that Jesus would be the unique God-man, truly God and truly man, and the only one qualified to be the mediator between God and man who could reconcile us to God. What a marvelous mystery. Now in verse 8, Paul shows us the third downward step of the humility of Christ. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, the reality that Jesus was obedient to the point of death implies that he was obedient at every point in his life as well. In all of his life as a human, Jesus was completely obedient to the Father. John 6, 38 says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus perfectly obeyed the law of God. He perfectly carried out the mission that had been given to him by the Father. And all this obedience that Jesus had accrued in his lifetime was essential to his mission as a servant. Because on the basis of this obedience to the Father, 
his people would one day be counted righteous. Even still, the righteousness that Jesus procured for his people, it was necessary, but it was not sufficient. Because to truly rescue his people, he also had to pay the penalty for their sins. And the wages of sin is death. So having fully obeyed the Father in this life, our Savior was also obedient to him in his death. Now, as if this humiliation of the Son of God becoming man was not enough, Paul says that Jesus took humility to even greater depths when he says that he was obedient to death and even death on a cross. That is as low as you can go. The the cross was a cruel form of execution, and in the Roman Empire, it was reserved for criminals and slaves. The person to be crucified was first tortured, stripped naked, fastened to a cross with nails and ropes, and slowly tortured to death as a spectacle for all to see. Can you imagine a more humiliating scene? The God of the universe submitting himself to death on a cross, reserved for the lowest of low in society. Now consider for a moment the infinite gap that Jesus crossed in his humiliation. This is the infinite gap that separated us from a holy God. But it is also the infinite love of God that compelled him to such humiliation and shame so that we could be rescued. Think about this for a moment. What other story or even even what other religion that God comes to save his people through his own humiliation and shame? There is a uniqueness and wonder and awe in our humble Savior. There is no one like Him. So friend, have you trusted in this humble Savior? If you have trusted Him, doesn't thinking about the depths of His humiliation fill you with gratitude and thankfulness? And I hope it also assures you of His great love for you. If He went to such depths of humiliation to rescue you, He will make sure that nothing in all of creation will separate you from his love for you. Now, we've considered the depth of the humiliation of Christ, but the story, thankfully, does not end there. In verse 9 through 11, Paul wants us to see the result of the humiliation of Christ. Point number two, the exaltation of Christ. Therefore, God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, the therefore at the beginning of this verse implies that it is because of Jesus' obedience and humility that the result of this path of obedience is going to result in his exaltation. The path of humiliation that Jesus took resulted in God raising Jesus 
from the dead through the power of the Spirit. And God exalted Jesus to the right hand of the throne from where he rules and reigns as Lord over all. Now let's look again at how this is a fulfillment of what was prophesied in Isaiah about the suffering servant. In Isaiah 52:13, Yahweh says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely, and he shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Now, there was a unique glory that Jesus had before creation as the exalted Son, the eternal Son of God. But now, as a man, because of his path of obedience in his humiliation, Jesus has been exalted to an even more glorious place than before. Once Jesus was worshipped and adored as creator and sustainer of the world, but now also as redeemer. Once he was glorified as the only true God, but now he's also glorified as the unique God-man who has redeemed his people. He has been exalted to the highest place, and he is worthy of blessing and honor and glory and power, and we must recognize that. Paul goes on to tell us in verse 9 that God exalting Christ also includes bestowing on Jesus the name that is above every name. The name at which every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now it seems that the focus here is not on the name of Jesus, but the title of a lordship that is given to Jesus at his resurrection. And this is not insignificant here because Paul is drawing again from Isaiah and he's going to make a stunning connection. So follow here with me, Isaiah 45, 22 and 23. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am Yahweh and there is no other by myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out righteousness, a word shall not return. To me, every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall swear allegiance. Here in Isaiah, Yahweh is saying that every knee is going to bow to him. And in verse 10 of Philippians, Paul is saying that every knee is going to bow to the exalted Christ. The point as profound as it is simple. Jesus Christ is Yahweh in the flesh. What God has promised to do in the book of Isaiah is fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus. And one day all creation will recognize and bow down to the sovereign and exalted King Jesus. Now, the universal scope of the Lordship of Christ is going to include everything in all of creation include everything in heaven, which is the realm of God and the angels, everyone on earth, which is the place of humanity, and under the earth, which is the place of the dead, as well as demons and the devil himself. And not only every creature will bow down to Jesus, but Paul tells us that every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Every single person from the ends of the earth, the young, the old, the believer, and the unbeliever alike will openly acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, 
the one true God. Now, the declaration that Jesus is Lord was an early confession of the Christians. And proclaiming that Jesus is Lord was in direct assault on what was the accepted truth of the Roman Empire, that Caesar alone is Lord. Christians were persecuted for proclaiming that there is one who is the Lord even above Caesar. And one day Caesar himself will bow down and confess with his own tongue that Jesus is Lord. What about you? Have you submitted to the Lordship of Christ? You can either submit to him now willingly or one day you will be made to bow to Jesus as Lord. If you humble yourself now before the mighty hand of God and ask him to save you, he will gladly do it. Now, for those of you who have submitted to the Lordship of Christ, think about this for a moment. Do you spend your life making His great name known? Or are you more interested in making your name known? Friends, no matter how high you get in this life, you will die, and your name will be forgotten. But there's one name that is given among men by which we might be saved, and his name is Jesus. And he has the highest name, and the name of Jesus will never be forgotten. So church, let us give our lives to making that great name known among all the earth. Now we've considered the depths of the humiliation of Christ, and we've considered the heights of of the exaltation of Christ. Finally, we'll conclude with our imitation of Christ. Back from verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. I want to remind you of something important here. Having a humble mindset is not the means by which we work our way back up to God. That's not what Paul is doing here. Remember in verse 1 through 3 of last week, it is because of God's grace that we have received encouragement in Christ, comfort from His love, and fellowship by His Spirit. We are already loved and accepted by God. And now, by the power of the Spirit, we slowly and imperfectly grow in our humble attitude as we look to our humble Savior. Do you see the depths of God's selfless love for you? That's what our Savior did, and that's the life he calls us to as well. Now, there are many reasons that Jesus chose the downward spiral of humiliation. I'm not even going to be able to cover all of it, but he did it to glorify the Father, as verse 11 tells us. He did it to bring salvation to his people. But there is one motivation I want to highlight that was in the mind of Christ, and I think it's appropriate to our sermon series in Philippians, and I hope that it would motivate us to humility. It's Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, 
the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and humiliation, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus was motivated by joy to endure the agonies of the cross. He was motivated by joy to continue down the path of shame and humiliation and to take upon himself the penalty for our sin. What was this joy? It was the greatest imaginable joy of being exalted to the right hand of God among the gathered, redeemed people of God. It was, it was the joy of being glorified with the Father with the same glory that he had before the foundation of the world. It was the joy of accomplishing the mission that he had received from the Father. There is much joy available to us as well as we follow our Savior. And I pray that the joy that motivated Christ would be a source of indestructible joy for us, no matter how low we have to go in this life. Let me just close with some points of application. How can you grow in humility? Paul answers it for us. We look to Christ. Look at the pattern that Jesus has set for us. A pattern of considering others more significant than selves and serving the needs of others. You might ask, how much lower do I need to go in my humility? (laughs) Let me just say that you cannot go any lower than Jesus did. So we all have a long way to go in our humility. So let's look to Jesus. Let's learn from him. Let's seek to go lower, not seeking a name for ourselves, but serving others, even though you might not be recognized. I want you to know that God sees and he is pleased with you. And he has promised to reward every act of humble service in his name when he returns for you. Church, we have, we all have much lower to go in this life to follow the path that Jesus has set before us. So let us pray that the Spirit empowers us to true and genuine humility for the sake of others. Now, how can we grow in humility as a church? I must say, as I did last week, there are marks of God's grace that are throughout this body as I watch how you humbly serve one another. Just even in this past week, I've seen so many of you make meals for others in need. You've taken people into your home who need a family. You hold the hands of those who are weak, and you humbly serve others. You invite people into your homes and feed them. And I am so thankful for the examples, many examples of humble service. Even on Sunday mornings, I'm so thankful for all of you who come here at 8.30, 9.30, 10, to serve so we can worship, so we can have coffee. So thankful. I want to especially recognize an often forgotten group of people who are examples of tireless humility to us. And that is mothers. Mothers are the ones that display the kind of humility that is not recognized by most people. 
and especially not by your kids when you are loving and serving them continually. I just want you to know that the Lord sees and the Lord knows and the Lord is pleased with your humility. And you will be rewarded for every act of humble service in the way you serve your children. Church, the path of humiliation that Jesus took, I'm so thankful in one sense no one else can replicate and no one else is called to replicate. Jesus, in one sense, had a once and for all unique act of dying on the cross for our sins so we can have eternal life. It is because he was raised from the dead and exalted to the right hand of the Father, we know we also will be raised and exalted to rule and reign with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. These are the shared realities that belong to us because of Jesus, the one who made a way for us, the God-man, the servant, the slave, So let us now follow him. Let his example compel us to have the same mindset that he had. And know that our imitation of Christ's humility will lead to joy in our unity now and everlasting joy when he returns again for us. Amen.